Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Caswell Barry. I'm here with my co-host, Steve Fleming. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And today we're very excited to be joined by Katerina Schmack. So welcome Katerina, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, so for Katerina, oh no, it's great. It's, uh, we haven't done one of these for a while, so we're excited to be back in action here at Brain Stories. Um, so Katerina, um, did medical training in, in Berlin. She got her MD, PhD from the charity. Um, and then um, she completed postdoctoral training and a psychiatry specialization in Berlin before moving to do a postdoc in Adam Kepitz's group at Coldspring Harbor Laboratory. So working on um, mouse models of decision-making and confidence. Um, and her research focuses on psychosis and um, the changes in the brain that occur when we hallucinate. Um, and I think it's really exciting work that Katerina is doing, as we'll, as we'll find out, because she's taking this cross-species approach, so applying models of psychosis that we can study both in humans and mice to really study the neural circuits and immune processes that give rise to hallucinations and other psychotic symptoms. So we're really excited to have you here, Katerina, and um, I'm sure you can give our listeners a more um, accurate and in-depth introduction to your research. So I was wondering if you could just kick us off with um, a couple of minutes on, on what, you, what you do in your lab. Yes, thanks. Um, so yeah, as you already said, we are interested in psychosis. And as uh, most people might know, psychosis is this state that is characterized by um, delusions and hallucinations which basically are unfounded perceptions and beliefs. And that's what kind of got me into this field and what I find fascinating about this. And um, we try to understand the biological mechanisms that govern these unfounded um, perceptions. And we are doing this by adopting this cross-species approach. Um, so our idea is that we can model these processes uh, in a way using behavioral tasks and computational models that allows us to both um, relate them to subjective experiences in humans, but on the other hand, also to then dig into the biological mechanisms in rodent models. Um, yeah, and I'm very excited. We just started our lab and we are um, uh, working both in humans and in uh, mice model, mouse models to uh, understand both the neural circuit mechanisms that govern let's say, um, hallucination-like perceptions. Um, and also we have become very interested in the idea that um, apparent immune responses might trigger some of these um, yeah, unfounded perceptions. Fantastic. Yeah, and I should have said, sorry, that you have just started your, your lab at the Crick um, uh, Institute, which is an amazing building. I came to visit Katarina's lab a few months ago and really incredible place to be um, starting up your science there. Um, so I was just wondering, if you could um, give us a flavor of one of the recent findings um, that have come out of those experiments on, on hallucinations and delusions. 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the most recent finding that is kind of established is um, from my postdoctoral work together with Adam Kepich at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. So um, what we set out to do there is um, to understand the long-standing question of how dopamine relates to psychosis. So it has been known for a long time that too much dopamine is somehow related to psychosis um, characterized by hallucinations and delusions. But what has not been was not clear was how does too much dopamine actually lead to these aberrant perceptions, to unfounded perceptions? Um, and that is because the role of dopamine has been well characterized in the fields of decision-making or in, of learning so um, and of uh, cognition or movement. But there hasn't been a good understanding of why of, of the role of dopamine in perception. And so we wondered, okay, maybe we can address this um, in with a cross-species approach, because um, the, the big challenge that we are facing in psychiatry research and in neuroscience in general is that on the one hand, we have subjective experiences that are really hard to capture um, objectively because they are subjective by definition. Um, and on the other hand, we have um, yeah, biological mechanisms that we can study um, only when if we have an objective measure and we can study them especially well in rodent models where we now have all these amazing tools of system neuroscience. And so to bridge, to, to address this challenge, we um, started thinking, okay, how can we measure hallucinations or something processes related to hallucinations uh, in a way that both allows us to then go into humans and relate them to their actually experienced hallucinations, but also um, to measure them in um, mice in that case. And we started out with thinking about, okay, what is a hallucination? And when we look at what a hallucination is, it's basically a perception that is not triggered by an external stimulus, so an unfounded perception. But one another important um, aspect is that it is also perceived with high confidence or high certainty. And we thought that this is something that we can actually capture in a behavioral task. And the behavioral task we came up with is basically a task where we play tones and then humans or mice are trained to tell us whether they hear the tone or whether they don't hear a tone. And then we ask them how confident they are. Um, humans just press a, a, a position, a cursor um, on, a, on a sliding scale to tell us how confident they are. And mice, um, we train them to wait, to invest time, to wait for a certain interval of time. And the idea here is that if they are very confident that they actually did hear a tone, um, then they will wait for longer times, they will invest more time. And now what that gives us is um, a way to, um, to measure something that we call hallucination-like perceptions, which is defined as instances where we do not play any tone, but nevertheless the, the human participant or the mouse reports hearing a tone, and they do so with high confidence or high certainty. And um, so that kind of allowed us to first go into humans and look, okay, do people with hallucinations that experience hallucinations in their daily lives, do they have more of these objectively captured hallucination-like perceptions? And we found a correlation between these two, um, suggesting that our task might engage some of the processes that might be relevant for these subjective experiences. And um, that then allowed us to go into mice, and we could also do some manipulations that we know are related to psychosis. Um, so actually, I'm re really curious about this. Um, interesting definition of psychosis you have. So it captures more than I would have imagined psychosis is as someone who doesn't work in this in this bit of the field at all. Um, and I guess there's a question that comes out of that, which is, is psychosis, are, are sort of these sorts of hallucinations always pathological? Or is this actually just something that happens part of everyday life, especially thinking of your tone task? I often think I've yes. heard like the doorbell go or something like this. This seems like yes. a, a normal continuum of of effects. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. That's how we view um, hallucinations and psychotic experiences in general. And I think that's also why we study them, because for me, hallucinations are kind of an extreme expression of our normal perception. So understanding what's going on in hallucination will actually inform us uh, about what is how perception works in general. And um, so indeed, there are we all have we are all on a spectrum and we move on the spectrum as we sleep more or less. We uh, move more towards the psychotic spectrum, for instance, if we don't sleep a lot or if we take, uh, yeah, if, if they're like all these, um, this is the, exactly like the right description. And as you said, we, most of us know this kind of experiences. We have the feeling that our phone vibrates, but then it didn't vibrate. Or another experience that many young parents have that they hear their baby crying and then they go there to check on the baby and it's perfectly asleep. And that happens especially um, when parents are tired, but also when there is a background noise, let's say the AC is running in the in the States, a very common um, thing. So there, there's this background uh, white noise and then we start to hear things in it. And I think it is basically a reflection of our basic perceptual machinery. I think that's basically what we do in our life when we perceive things. We always impose our expectations on the sensory input. Um, and as, as the sensory input gets... like. The, the weaker the sensory input is, the more we have to do that. So um, if there is like a white background noise, we need to impose more structure on that to actually make out what is going on. And that might lead to the to the effect that we might hear something that we are just expecting to hear, such as our baby crying. Um, so, um, yeah. I'm wondering if, um, I don't want to take you too far off topic, but when you mentioned the, the issues of sleep, I mean, the, the main time in my life that I've experienced strong tactile hallucinations was when I was, um, you know, just after we had our son and I used to wake up thinking he was still sleeping on me in a, in a kind of panic that I had fallen asleep and I, I could just feel him on me. And I'm just wondering, do we know much about the mechanisms behind how sleep deprivation might lead to greater hallucinatory perception? And I think it's not well understood. Um, it's a very interesting uh, topic. And I think, um, I, I, yeah, we now have the tools to address these, these questions. Um, there are some findings that sleep deprivation does this, that it, it kind of um, shifts the perceptual threshold. But there's not really a good understanding mm. why this happens. I mean, my first guess now would be dopamine. Um, and there are people working on the role of dopamine during sleep. And there are some really um, interesting uh, there's some really interesting work on uh, the role of dopamine during REM sleep and how this impacts also future learning. So um, I think, um, yeah, there's much to be discovered and we don't understand yet, but we have all the tools now to address this question. Um, I, I really love this. By the way, this example you gave of parents uh, hearing mm. things. So it, it chimes with a personal experience. A few years ago, we used to have a joke in the lab when my children were young, uh, against the background noise of a shower, so like white noise, like you said, uh, I would hear them crying. And so the joke was that I have a, a crying prior because I guess we're all Bayesian. Um, yeah. and, and I suppose there's a serious <laughs> message in here, which, which I, I think is what you were saying. Basically, this, am I right in thinking then that you sort of view these forms of hallucinations as um, essentially an inappropriate trade-off between your internal model of the world and sort of the incoming external sensory stimuli? Does that without getting too detailed, do you think there's a role for dopamine in sort of arbitrating between between the model and the incoming data? Because yeah. that sounds quite an interesting idea. Yeah, so actually that's um, kind of our 
that's what our findings suggest. So um, what we could do in mice, we could actually measure dopamine during this task. And what we found was that first more dopamine and especially more do baseline dopamine, so baseline high baseline levels of dopamine, they preceded these hallucination-like perceptions. And they also, um, also if we stimulated dopamine, they, they induced these hallucination-like perceptions. And then, and that speaks uh, is the answer to your question, when we looked when we used a model and we, we looked, we tried to model the, the agent as some as an agent who learns a model of the world. And we did this in a very simple way. We just assumed that if you hear a stimulus, you, you are more likely to expect hearing a stimulus on the next trial. So a very basic, simple model. And we found indeed that dopamine um, scaled with, with the strength of these expectations. So um, And it was really a linear uh, relationship. So it looked very similar to this expectation of hearing a tone as a um, modeled by our model. So yeah, I think dopamine might um, encode these predictions um, of what we are expecting to perceive. And this is kind of reminiscent of uh, reinforcement learning, where we also think that dopamine encodes, I mean, maybe we don't call it a prediction, but it encodes responses to a cue, um, which in a way is a prediction of an upcoming reward. And so um, I think we probably still need to kind of um, bring together these two aspects of um, dopamine in a, in a coherent model. But I think there is really um, there's reason to believe that dopamine might be important for um, constantly encoding a prediction about about the world, about whether there will be something relevant coming up or not. That's, that's really cool. It feels like very close to having sort of both a really complete model ways of attacking it and animal models and understanding of what's happening in humans. That seems quite exciting in the world of neuroscience, more, more exciting than my world, maybe. Is, is the implication that then in, in people who are suffering from psychosis, that there are uh, pathologies of the dopamine system? Is that, is that something that's already known or is that a hypothesis or... Yeah, so that's one of the leading hypotheses um, of psychosis, the dopamine hypothesis. It's grounded in the observation that antipsychotics that were discovered by serendipity, that, that these antipsychotics all uh, block dopamine transmission at the D2 receptor. Um, and also, not only do they block the dopamine transmission, but there's also a, a linear relationship between the dose that is needed um, of an antipsychotic to generate a clinical response and the affinity of the of this substance to the receptor. Um, and so um, that's why people have formulated this hypothesis a long time ago. Um, and uh, this has been <clears throat> recently um, backed up by some uh, imaging studies um, where they find that increased dopamine um, uh, re uh, uptake in the striatum actually is uh, observed in people with psychosis, but also in people who um, have pre-psychosis or who have a very high risk for psychosis. Um, so yeah, th this is the evidence that we have for um, increased dopamine uh, transmission in the striatum in psychosis. Can I pick up on something you said uh, just before about the, the role of dopamine in reinforcement learning and updating the values of the things we um, act on and the role of dopamine you've discovered in perception? And I'm wondering how you think about those, I guess, dual roles. Do you think of those two distinct roles? Do you think there's a kind of common framework within which we can understand what dopamine is doing there? Um, so I think there is a common framework to understand dopamine. Um, what I have not told you yet is that 
we actually also find these value signals, but we find them in a different region of the striatum. So we find that dopamine mm. encodes more of these value-based expectations in the ventral striatum, which is kind of an expected finding. It's where, where reward processing is thought to happen. But then if we look in the tail of the striatum, which is a region that receives more input from sensory um, areas, especially auditory cortex, but also visual cortex, we find that dopamine encodes more of these perceptual expectations. And so what I think... I think dopamine probably doesn't have any content, like it doesn't encode what we will perceive or what we will, what we are mm. expecting, um, because there are just a few dopamine, a few thousand dopamine neurons. It's impossible to encode all the possible contents that we will ever perceive. So what I think is happening um, is that dopamine is part of these loops of the corticostriatal um, thalamic loops, and it has uh, a, probably a role in kind of um, tuning these loops towards um, relying more on the cortical inputs or relying more on the thalamic inputs. And dependent on where in the stratum we are, dopamine has these different roles because it kind of has the same uh, computational role, but for different loops that carry different kinds of information. And so the idea that we have is that maybe dopamine leads to a, a state where the striatal um, uh, transmission starts to rely more on the um, cortical inputs that might convey these internal models of the world rather than on the thalamic inputs that might convey these uh, more sensory inputs. But that's just an hypothesis right now. Um, and um, that might explain why when there is um, when there is more dopamine, why we start to expect something that is in, in line with the mo our model of the world. This might be a perceptual model. This might be like about what we are going to perceive, but it might also be a, a kind of reward encoding model. What 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 reinforcer we are going to encounter. So um, that's uh, my current view on that. Um, but uh, there's lots to be there are lots of hypotheses to be tested to actually uh, prove or, or, or establish this this framework. Um, how far do you think that model extends? I mean, we're talking about it in terms of sort of perception. But do you think the same sort of framework sort of applies to things like people's beliefs? I guess I'm thinking like, you know, one of the topics of the du jour is you know, how polarized the world is on social media and people only look for information about, you know, their own worldview. Do you think the same same logic and yeah. neural systems apply to that? Yes, I definitely think that beliefs and perceptions are more or less the same thing. I mean, obviously they are not the same thing, but they are governed by the same um, inferential processes of the brain. So it's always about inferring the state of the external world. Sometimes we do this on a very um, yeah, sensory level where we infer what objects are present in our physical proximity. But sometimes we do it on a more um, yeah, intellectual level or a, a more belief level where we kind of believe what are the, the, the rules that govern the world? What are the connections that govern the world? Um, and this is what we call beliefs. But I think um, it's always about predicting 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 the, the 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 what is what will happen next in the world um, that might be relevant to us and so I, I completely believe that beliefs and perceptions or delusions and hallucinations are the same are governed by the same um, inferential mechanisms and that's also why we observe them so often um, occurring together in psychosis I mean delusions and hallucinations there is a reason there must be a reason for why these two phenomena co-cluster together um, and yeah it's a very interesting question and I think it also yeah it's, it's very interesting to to think about these um, yeah conspiracy theories or, or observe why um, especially now during the pandemic we we, we have seen this that um, there has been this shift towards conspiracy theories or this um, they have surged and there are really studies showing that people have started to believe more in conspiracy theories and also we know that people differ in their 
um, tendency um, towards kind of uh, or their susceptibility towards these kind of um, conspiracy um, yeah frameworks um, yeah and I think it's uh, the same it's on the on the on the same spectrum as psychosis um, and yeah lots to be discovered. So it's absolutely fascinating stuff very exciting program of research so I'm just wondering what first got you interested in this area so we mentioned before you did psychiatry training but what was the point at which you realized you could create this bridge between animal and human work on psychosis? Um, well, <laughs> there were like several steps, so there wasn't one first <laughs> one step where this happened. So it all evolved um, over my career, I think. Um, so I don't know. It depends how much you want, how far you want me to go back. But if I can, um, maybe all let's let's do it retrospectively <laughs> all the way. OK, perfect, because I think so. Um, so I, obviously, I, I, um, I studied medicine, which is not directly neuroscience. And um, I was not particularly interested in psychiatry or neuroscience or anything, um, but I was not really fulfilled by medicine because um, it takes a lot away a lot of your time because you have to study a lot. Um, but I didn't really feel like, let's say, intellectually stimulated because it's a lot of memorizing. You need to just know your facts. Um, and so I, I was left with this kind of feeling of, yeah, I'm not sure whether this is right for me. I, I, I was not really happy with my career in medicine in the early years of med, uh, of med school. And then I had this seminar on fMRI and psychiatry. And um, that completely spoke to me. Like I, I, I was blown away by this because I, I learned about this technique that allows you to visualize brain activity while people are having emotions and thoughts. And that I thought really opened up like, a whole new way for me of thinking about how you can actually understand um, why what makes us human and what what uh, the, the the substance of our the substrate of our subjective experiences. So I was very excited by that, and that kind of got me in touch with um, the psychiatry department, where I then um, did my um, thesis on fMRI. Um, and in my thesis, um, one project was concerned with um, the. Um, so my, my thesis was on dopamine, um, again, <laughs> dopamine um, in the context of working memory um, and reward processing. And one um, finding we um, had was that a um, genetic variant in, a, in an enzyme that encodes for differences in dopamine um, catabolism um, in the comp gene um, was actually related to um, responses to reward um, and brain responses to reward. And I thought that this was extremely fascinating because it directly provided this bridge between a really hardwired biological fact, it's a base pair basically, um, and this uh, subjective response to something such as like, how, how much do I value the same amount of reward? Um, and that kind of got, got me into this, yeah, fascination of how, how biology relates to this uh, very uh, effusive or uh, hard to capture subjective experience. Um, and so as I went along, I, I, I did my specialization and um, I, I kind of this biological um, interest uh, was reinforced by uh, encountering some patients. So one of the first patients I ever treated was um, a, a person who happened to have like typical symptoms of psychosis, paranoia. Um, she thought that there were cameras in, in her bedroom that were broadcasting on the, inter uh, on the internet. Um, and it turned out that this person um, had multiple sclerosis. It was the first um, uh, manifestation of multiple sclerosis, something more or less defined, like a very defined biological process, an autoimmune attack against some proteins in the brain. And th this kind of experience really got me into this yeah, okay, there, 
this is this is interesting. Like, how can something so defined on a biological level lead to these very strange symptoms of psychosis? Um, and as I went along, obviously, in many patients, we do not know the biological causes. We are unable to find the biological causes. But um, I, I, yeah, thought that these these symptoms they they although they are hard to grasp, they they occur in these patterns that led psychiatrists to basically come up with diagnosis. So there is something that kind of yeah that allows us to group them together into diagnosis. And although we know that these patterns, this has limitations, but still um, two psychiatrists see a patient and they might agree on a diagnosis uh, for this patient. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I really um, became more and more fascinated in this. Why, why do these symptoms um, occur? And especially these psychotic symptoms, um, yeah, in this uh, delusions and hallucinations, um, especially because they can be triggered by biological processes. And um, at that time, I um, then uh, read a paper that was very influential for me. It's a review by um, uh, Paul Fletcher and Chris Fritt, uh, Perceiving is Believing. Um, it's, I think, a classic by now. But um, the, the, the main idea put forward in this paper is that basically what we talked about earlier um, today is that beliefs and perceptions are uh, grounded in the same inferential process of the brain, and we can understand these aberrant beliefs and aberrant perceptions um, as the same uh, alteration of how we um, integrate incoming sensory information with our predictions derived from our internal model in the world. And psychosis in this case can be viewed as a state where our predictions from our model override the sensory input too much in a, in a, in a, in a way that is dysfunctional or maladaptive, let's say. Um, and so that kind of got me started. And this opened up like a, a new framework for really now generating testable hypothesis about psychosis, about psychotic symptoms. And I was very lucky to um, be able to join um, Philip Sterzer's lab, who uh, was a, a clinician scientist at CHIT. And um, he um, uh, had just uh, started his lab there. And um, together, we could now test these hypotheses and test whether psychosis is really associated with an uh, over-reliance on these prior expectations. Um, and we did a series of studies and we found some very interesting results. Um, it was, uh, in a nutshell, we found that indeed um, people with psychotic experiences are related to an over-reliance on these prior expectations, but not always. There are also some other kind of expectations where that are actually weakened. And I think our working model um, now is that um, psychosis, there might be kind of a, um, some kind of very automatic predictions in psychosis might become weakened. Um, and that leads to an in, unstable sensory um, processing, unstable sensory uh, representations. And now in, in response to that, these more higher level or more cognitive priors, more conscious priors, they take over and in an attempt to restructure this very unstable sensory mm -hmm. representation. So I was just wondering if you can, sorry, I was interested in what you said at the start of, that, of the journey was essentially you were not sure at that stage whether medicine was kind of studying medicine, the way, the way you were studying it was fulfilling enough. And I'm just wondering, I'm thinking of listeners who might be at the stage of thinking about how to get into neuroscience and I guess there's these two potential routes. You could go down the clinician science route, but you need to invest in your medical training early on. And it feels like now you've kind of come out the other side of that and are in a really amazing and uh, exciting place where you can combine the patient work and the, and, the, and the neuroscience. But I'm wondering, what would you say to your former self 
who was struggling with the, or not struggling necessarily, but sitting there learning the, the facts about medicine. Um, what would you say to them at that stage um, about what to do? Hang now? in there. Hang in there. Okay. It's uh, <laughs> good advice to all of us, I think. <laughs> I think. I mean, it's. Um, I think there's no unique route to anything in anywhere in the world anymore. Um, I mean, obviously, if you want to be a doctor and see patients, you need to study medicine. I think that's a pretty given um, thing. Um, but I mean, I, I'm, I, I came out on the other side quite happy about being a physician scientist um, because I think, I mean, I obviously would recommend everyone to become a physician scientist. Um, but no, I think what it gives me is, first of all, I mean, on a personal level, it's, it's very satisfying. It's very easy for me to just go back. Like if we know in, in research, like um, it can be very tedious at times. There can be long periods of where nothing happens and where we, it's easy to, to, to get, uh, uh, to lose track of the, of the big picture. And then it's very easy for me to just go back into clinical work. And it's a very different way of, of working, um, although it has some commonalities, but um, it's very easy to find my motivation and, and just be satisfied by this clinical work. So on a, on a very personal level, it's, I feel really privileged um, to have this possibility to just go back and see patients and um, yeah, remember what got me into research um, again and again. Um, so I think that's that's a very good thing. But then also like for the research side, I think, um, and that doesn't mean that people have to do translational science. Um, I think having a clinical background just gives you a different kind way of thinking about problems. Um, and I think this is just a perspective that is very important in, in science. I mean, we need diverse perspectives to solve the difficult problems we are trying to um, solve. But I think the perspective of clinicians is really valuable. Um, and that doesn't mean that it has to be applied to a clinical problem, but it means just how you think of even about basic science problems is influenced by this clinical um, perspective. And so, um, yeah, I, I really feel uh, fortunate that I went through all of this um, because um, I feel it has informed my science and it, it keeps and it's definitely a continuous source of inspiration for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm really struck by how how motivating it must be to be able to sort of it feels like you're almost back to close the loop um, and that you could yeah. potentially be seeing in the relatively near future some sort of uh, actual tangible outcome that can be applied to people in the clinic. I mean, do you think that's now that we've got this sort of pretty good model of, you know, the cause of the uh, hallucinations. Do you think that suggests a route through to a, a, a treatment profile, or is that is that actually quite a big step to take? Well, I, I hope it's not that big, but I think, um, and I'm really a strong advocate of basic science. Um, I think, and that's what I'm interested in. Um, so I think we really need to understand the mechanisms to then generate new treatments. So I think we should not jump too early into kind of trying to find new treatments, although this is a goal of our of our outcome, but um, there won't be good treatments without understanding the mechanisms. And in psychiatry in particular, that's a huge challenge there. We, we know so little about how the medications we have even work. Um, that's true for antipsychotics, but even antidepressants. Lithium, a very, very effective drug, is we have no idea how it actually works. So, um, and that means we cannot really improve on them, right? Because if we don't know how they work, we don't really know what the next steps will be. So we all we can do is control serendipity, basically what people call it. So we can just try and try and try and see whether we find something. And there, there have been some advances using this approach, but it's not really 
um, it doesn't seem like the, the fastest way to get to a breakthrough. Um, and that's why I think we really need strong basic neuroscience. And, and it's not always clear what exactly the outcome of this will be. And I hope that our research will definitely drive some new treatments in um, psychosis. Um, and I'm, I'm very confident that it will, but it's not exactly like, it's not clear to me it's not clear right now what exactly these treatments will look like and what exactly it will be. So, um, yeah, this is just my um, pitch for basic science. So I, I want to make sure that along, so along those lines that we get a chance uh, to ask you about your new line of work on immune processes, um, which I think is you're getting off the ground at the moment. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a few lines on, on what the, what the key focus is there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, so I got started on that because I was really unsatisfied with the causal models we have for psychosis in rodents. So we, we now have, I think we now have a way to measure hallucinations, but we still don't have a good way to induce hallucinations. And so I thought that maybe it, the immune system might be a good way to, 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 uh, to come up with, a, with, a, with ideas how to actually induce hallucinations in a way that is more um, similar to what happens in people who are experiencing hallucinations. And the evidence for this is... Um, so there is quite a few lines of evidence that suggest that psychosis can be triggered by apparent immune responses that probably target the brain. And so, for instance, um, we know from epidemiological studies that people with autoimmune disorders, such as lupus or, or other classic autoimmune disorders, um, they have an increased risk for psychotic um, episodes and the other way around as well. So if you have a psychotic disorder, you are, have a higher risk for getting a diagnosis of an autoimmune disorder later on. And um, if you have an autoimmune disorder, you have a higher risk for getting a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder later on. So that suggests that there might be some shared um, process here. We also know that sometimes... Um, we is know that, that, is that also genetic... the case for uh, acute affections? Like if, if uh, early in life someone has a... Acute infection, um, does that change the yes. risk as well? Yes. So, in fact, previous infections, um, both prenatal but also postnatally, early in life but also later in life, in general, infections in the, in the previous history, they also increase the risk for psychosis. Um, and there have been some fascinating case reports, even with COVID, where people have um, had, I mean, it's rare, it's, it's very rare, but it happens just to, to illustrate that there might be something um, to it. Um, that people have had COVID, acute COVID, and then a few weeks later, they start having really classic acute psychotic episodes. It's something that has been known for other viral infections as well. There is something called post-viral psychosis. So um, that's another line of evidence. The other line of evidence is, comes from genetic studies. So there, is a, there are GWAS studies that show that the um, the, uh, some of the genetic risk that is associated that predisposes for um, psychosis is located in immune-related gene regions. Um, the strongest hit of the GWAS was on chromosome 6 that encodes for um, the HLA, um, and, uh, which is kind of one of the most important immune regulatory regions in the genome. Um, and um, there are some fascinating case reports, although they are case reports, but um, it's still interesting to, to, uh, to know them. So, um, there are case reports of people who had um, stem cell transplants. A stem cell transplant basically replaces your immune system with the immune system of another person, um, to simplify things. Um, and so there is one case report from a person who had um, schizophrenia, so a treatment-resistant, um, severe psychosis. Um, and this person needed a stem cell transplant for another reason. And after receiving the stem cell transplant, so after receiving a new immune system, um, this person got much better for his uh, uh, wow, treatment-resistant um, 
schizophrenia. And this is even more intriguing when considered with another case report, which is kind of the, the opposite of that. So this is a person who did not have any mental health uh, problems, um, but needed a stem cell transplant. Um, and uh, uh, this person got a stem cell transplant from his brother, who was the only available donor, um, but his brother happened to have schizophrenia. Um, and so after receiving the stem cell transplant, this person developed symptoms that were consistent with schizophrenia. So uh, again, these are case reports, so it's always important. It's not a systematic study, so it's important to be cautious um, uh, when interpreting them. But still, it together with all the other evidence, I think it speaks to the possibility that psychosis might be caused by an autoimmune process targeting the brain. Um, and there's more evidence. We also know that people with psychosis have increased inflammatory cytokines in their blood. We also know um, that some autoimmune disorders really uh, manifest as psychosis. So there's um, autoimmune um, uh, encephalitis that targets NMDA receptors. And these patients typically, the very early stages of their disease, they, they have psychosis. They have symptoms that they look as someone with early schizophrenia. Um, it's then evolves further on and they get more severe um, symptoms. But still, um, this just shows that uh, this process in theory or in, in principle can trigger psychotic symptoms. So that's what we're trying to now understand and follow up in the lab and use our mouse model to really get at the mechanisms and understand how what exactly needs to be targeted in the brain to, to trigger these, these uh, experiences, uh, to trigger hallucination-like perceptions. Now, when I hear cases like that, I just realize, you know, it's, there's so much there is still left to understand. It's really quite an amazing system. Um, and yeah, you just, you just realize that there's, you think, you think you understand how a system works or part of the system works. And then you hear a case like an immune transplant leading to schizophrenia. And then it just completely opens up a new line of inquiry. So very exciting indeed. Is, I mean, how established is it? Is there, is there, any role yet for using sort of immune system suppressant drugs to to treat schizophrenia or other sorts of yeah. psychosis? So, okay, so there are some studies that show that if you give like an uh, anti-inflammatory drug such as aspirin um, as an uh, uh, adjunctive um, treatment to antipsychotics, it kind of uh, has additional beneficial effects. Um, but the effects are small. And there are also some clinical trials that try and have tried to use classical um, immunomodulatory drugs to treat psychosis. Um, these trials have been um, not successful so far, um, but I think one big issue here is, um, I think schizophrenia is a very heterogeneous disease. So, and I, it might be the case that only a proportion of patients um, is, only in a proportion of patients, we find really this autoimmune genesis. And let's say it's 20 or 50% of patients who have this, uh, where it is an autoimmune disease. So if we then do a clinical trial and we treat like all the patients with an, uh, immunomodulatory drugs um, and we don't even know exactly because immunomodulatory drugs, they also target different processes in the immune system. So we don't even know whether we are targeting the right, the right, uh, the right mechanism. Um, it's just it's very likely that this might be not successful because it might, even if there are effects for some patients, it might just dilute out in the, in the, in the, in the average that is important for clinical trials. And that's why I think the way to go is really understand the mechanisms. And then from there, we can then do stratified um, clinical trials where we see, okay, we have identified a mechanism. So let's, let's, use, let's look for patients where we find evidence that this mechanism is at play um, because they have an elevated cytokine or um, 
because we find antibodies against a certain antigen. Um, and then let's treat these patients with a drug that targets that mechanism. So that's kind of my vision here. But there's a long way to go to get there. Is there anything else you want to you want to cover? <laughs> but maybe one thing I, I I would like because I imagine there might be some students listening and maybe one kind of message I, I have for students um, who are thinking about their careers and what steps to take and what is the right way. Um, I think in general it's uh, I, I really um, observed that I made a lot of progress when I was willing to take risks and with risks I mean when I was willing to embark on a journey that I had actually no idea where it would end um, and I would just encourage people to to be open to kind of taking on risks for their careers because I feel it usually pays off if you let's say try to go into a new discipline or if you try to go to move to a new country I think the the, the beneficial effects just just of yeah, doing these these moves are are really high. So um, if you have an opportunity to do something that might seem a little anxiety provoking in the beginning, um, just uh, yeah, try to remember that usually these steps um, can pay off very well at the end. So that's just my encouragement for people: take risks if you can. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Katrina. Um, so we're almost out of time, and we're going to need to wrap up. But before we do. We like to ask each of our guests the same question. So are you ready? What's your favorite fact about the brain? <laughs> yes. So my favorite fact is actually my kid's favorite fact about the brain, um, which is about brain freeze. I don't know whether you've heard about this uh, uh, phenomenon. So if when you eat something very cold, you get this uh, sharp pain in, in your forehead, I guess. I, I've never experienced it. My kids experience it. And it actually has a medical name. Um, it is called sphenopalatine um, ganglioneuralgia. <laughs> and the, the phenomenon behind this is quite interesting. So if you eat something very cold, your blood vessels just shut down because they, it's too cold. And then when your blood vessels shut down, they usually after that, they just like open up all the way. And that is what, what leads to this pain. It's like when you have very cold hands and then they warm up again, it's really painful. So that's the same thing that is happening there. Um, and it happens more frequently in kids probably because they just eat more ice cream and, and like larger amounts of ice cream. So um, that's why they get more brain freeze. That's amazing. Perfect. I've got a fact to take straight to my three-year-old uh, this evening. Yeah. Yeah, have you remembered the name though, Steve? Yeah. I'm going to test you on it later. I have not remembered the name. I'll have to listen back to this episode to get the name. That was just a fascinating discussion. So thank you, Katharina, for joining us on this episode of Brave Story. Thank you. It was a, a fun discussion. Thanks. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir, and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking brain stories from an idea to a fully fledged podcast. Patrick Robertson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Please follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.